Have you guys ever seen one of those videos floating around on social media or somewhere, YouTube, whatever, where a baby with seriously impaired vision gets his first set of glasses? Have you seen one of these tear jerkers? You know, he's, the baby's whiny and he's fussy and he's frustrated, right? Uh, he's, been, he's just been sort of groping around, not in the dark, he's not completely blind, but all he's ever seen has just been fuzzy and blurry. And then the doctor puts on the glasses and his little face just lights up and he looks around everything and he, he sees his mother's face for the first time. And gets you right here, you know? Or, or another one where the baby is, is born nearly deaf and she's given a hearing aid and the little girl's face just looks so intensely happy and you can tell she's finally comforted in what was a, a silent and strange world when she finally hears her mother's voice. I want you to imagine that and then imagine the boy grows up, he gets older and he's toying with the idea of taking the glasses off and leaving them off. The little girl forgets how amazing the gift of hearing truly is and decides to take the hearing aids off and leave them off. That seems unimaginable, doesn't it? To have something as precious as that and to lose interest in it. But that's exactly what was happening around 65 AD. Only much more unimaginable, much more, so much worse and let me explain, at the, at the time when the book of Hebrews was written, it's been about 35 years and change, somewhere around there, since Christ was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And so it's about five years before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That's our moment in time, okay? And here's what was happening. The temple's still standing, so, you know, all the, all the Jewish practice and worship and sacrifices and all that stuff is still going on as usual, but a lot of Jews have left the old ways and they've trusted in Christ and in the apostles' teaching. Lots of them still remember Christ's crucifixion. Many of them were there. They, they saw it. They saw it happen. But most of them now are second-generation believers by this time. They came through faith through the preaching and the witness of those who were there, and they're beginning to lose interest. They're not as attentive to the preaching anymore. It doesn't excite them the way that it once did. Many people just aren't even, they're just skipping out altogether and not even gathering together for worship anymore. We find out in later chapters. And on top of all that, it's getting harder to be a Christian. There's a madman for an emperor named Nero. You know, he burned Rome and he blamed the Christians for it, so everybody hated them. And... He tortured Christians every opportunity he got. He would sew animal skins onto the flesh of Christians and that let wild beasts hunt them down and eat them alive. He would dip them in wax and set them on fire, burn them alive to light his garden parties. It's getting harder to be a Christian. And these people are beginning to wonder, is it worth it? Wouldn't you be asking yourself that? 
And the author of Hebrews says, don't go back. Don't give up. Don't stop seeing. Don't stop hearing. Remember Jesus and all he's done. The author of Hebrews rekindles the flame. They're thinking about going back to what was familiar and what was accepted by Rome so they could slip under the radar and avoid this persecution. Going back to the Jewish traditions and the sacrifices. And the author of Hebrews says, don't you see? There's, there's nothing back there for you. It, it, it's like an old empty warehouse that should be abandoned because there's no more work left to do. We have Jesus. All of those rites and rituals and laws and sacrifices were for a purpose, and that purpose has been fulfilled. It is finished. You're looking at the wrong things, he's telling them. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, and you'll see what all of that stuff back there meant and why it was important in the first place. That's what the author does. And that's the book of Hebrews. It's it's Christ and him crucified enlarged to show detail. All of the black and white outlines of the Old Testament explode with color in the book of Hebrews. The power and love and wonder and majesty of Jesus just keeps crashing over us like waves until we're so overwhelmed by the grace of God we can't think of ever turning our backs on Him. There's nothing better in this world or in the next. As we get into this, I would just say, if, if, if you sometimes get bored with the Christian life, or if you're tempted to sometimes uh, spice things up a bit by borrowing from other ideas and other stories out there that sort of resonate with you, the book of Hebrews is for you. If you're someone who has had trouble really feeling like God is present in your life and working in your life and struggled with assurance of your salvation and really knowing that you belong to him, Hebrews is for you. Because before it can can sink down in your heart and settle there, it has to capture your mind. Knowing what God says is true and where you fit into his plan of redemption and who it is that you have fighting for you. If you're someone who is, is high on belief but low on desire, you believe but the spark never seems to fan into flame and to generate activity and to motivate you in your life. Hebrews is for you. Hebrews is a reminder that you already have more than you dared imagine. It's an invitation to reawake the excitement you experienced the hour you first believed. To be in awe and wonder of the Savior all over again. It's an opportunity to renew your resolve And following him, and it's a warning to those who, after being reminded of all this, still choose to walk away, to turn a deaf ear to it, and to refuse to look at what's right before them. So with that, let's just read the first four verses and see who this Jesus is that the people in this time are getting bored with. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, 
through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, God, as we open your word this morning, we do thank you for it. We thank you for the truth of it. We, we thank you that we can trust you and we can rely on your revelation to us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us light and understanding of these things. And God, I pray as I begin to preach, Lord, you know, uh, in, in weeks leading up to this, this is too high for me. And so I pray that you, by your Spirit, would communicate the truth of your word to your people this morning. They need it. That the man before them would disappear, that they would see Christ and him crucified. That you would be exalted in our midst this morning. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. The main idea of these first four verses is God has spoken and he's said all that needs to be said. And the two points we can draw from it are God's revelation is complete and God's revelation is complete in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son. So, God's revelation is complete. The first thing we see is God has spoken. And y'all, I, t- <laughs> I was just sure we were going to spend a whole sermon on that. Wasn't I telling you that, David? I was going to do the whole sermon. God has spoken. Man, we could talk about that for five sermons. But I really wanted to take a little bit bigger chunk so that we could set up the context of the book a little bit and understand what it is that we're launching into over who knows how long we'll be in Hebrews. But God has spoken. I mean, just marinate on that a second. We don't have to guess what God is like. He has spoken, verses 1 and 2. That's good news. We don't have to wonder or speculate. We just have to listen. The God who made you, the God who made me, he has revealed himself to us. He has revealed his will for us to us. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to search. We just have to listen and obey. Our God is personal and he has spoken to us. We don't serve a God who is transcendent but not personal. We serve a God who is both transcendent and personal. Right? He's, he's not like us. He's not like any created thing. He is other than. He is outside of time and space. He is transcendent, but he is personal. He is communicative. He communicates with us. He created us in his own image, and so we would expect that, wouldn't he? That he would create us in such a way that he would have personal relationship with us. And what relationship can there be without communication? We got to talk. Right? We have to communicate with one another in order to have relationship with one another. I'd have to speak to you. You'd have to speak to me for us to know one another and have a relationship. God has spoken to us. It says here, verse 1, he's spoken to us many times. Not once. He has spoken and he has been speaking all along. And he's been speaking in many ways. He's spoken throughout all human history, sometimes audibly, sometimes through visions and through dreams, sometimes by etching his law into stone by hand. 
but mostly by his spirit working in chosen men whose words were what God intended for man to hear, by his prophets. He's been speaking to us by what was written by the prophets. Then in verse 2, we see that in these last days that are different than before, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, a quick uh, helpful reminder here. When you see last days in the Bible, remember it has less to do with how many days are left and more to do with what kind of days they are. It's less about a quantity of days and more about the quality of days. There is a division in the timeline of human history at the cross. These days... These last days that they were in and these last days that we're in now, these are a different kind of days. We didn't have days like this before. There's been a seismic shift in the cosmos as a result of Christ's incarnation, his death, burial, and resurrection. These are different days than before. And in these days, God isn't silent. He has spoken to us by his son. So they have something different now, these folks that this letter is to. They have something different now than they had before, a different means by which God has spoken. But here's what they're going to begin to realize and what we all need to remember is God only has one revelation, right? It's not as though Jesus is the first time that God has spoken. Clearly, he's been speaking from the beginning. So here's the first thing the author makes sure they understand that we need to understand is the story of Jesus isn't a new story. It's the ending to the old one that God has been telling from the beginning. And there's no more need for prophets to come and tell you what happens next. It already came. Everything they said that you could expect, everything that they said was coming has come already. Jesus is who they were talking about. And so we look to him now and see what he says. You can almost hear the author saying, don't you know what this means? You know, don't you see? We're not waiting on more revelation from God. We don't need any more revelation. These last days are different than the ones before. Now God has spoken to us by his son. So God's revelation, point number two, is completed in the person of Christ. And this will be the little bit longer, lengthier portion of the sermon. God's revelation is completed in the person of Christ the son. God's revelation in the Old Testament, though a lot is revealed there, that's the bigger part of your Bible, isn't it? There's a lot of revelation there, but it wasn't complete. It was incomplete. God still had more to say, but now he doesn't. I'm sure everyone has a favorite TV show, right? Whether you have one now or had one uh, years ago. I know some people are just still like, Seinfeld was the greatest show on TV. There'll never be a better one. Some of you still remember when Happy Days was on the air. And I know some of you, because we've talked about this, that you just stuck on the office, and I don't get it. I just don't. I don't get it, but that's okay. Like, I probably like some stuff you don't like, and there's grace for both of us. But the thing about a good TV show, a good one, right, is there's more than one season. There's many seasons. And the last episode of the season is the season finale, And after that season finale, we're waiting to see what happens next. We want to see. We're kind of on edge on a little bit of a cliffhanger. We're waiting till next year or whenever the next season drops so that we can find out what happens next and how things begin to wrap up. But the last episode of the last season is the end. Show's over. 
The author wants these Christians to see Jesus is the final word of God. He is the completion of his revelation to his people. They're tempted to go back and look for what God says is going to happen next, right? They're looking to the old ways of Jewish, Jewish worship when they've got the finale right in front of them. God has spoken, and this time it's complete, and there's nothing more to say. You know, all, all through all of this, God's people have always been on a need-to-know basis, right? They've always been on a need-to-know basis, and now God has determined they need to know it all, and they have it all in Jesus Christ. God's revelation is complete, permanent, final, and it's complete in the person of Christ the Son. If you want the theme of the book of Hebrews, you may have heard this before. If you haven't, you can jot this down. Write it in your, write it in your Bible. Like, I don't know, some of you don't like to do that. <laughs> I understand. But it'd be good just to write, you know, up there at the heading somewhere, Jesus is superior. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews, okay? Jesus is superior. And here in the first sentence, we see that he's the superior what? What are we talking about this morning? He is the superior revelation of God. Superior in the sense that there's no more revelation coming after it, and superior because this revelation has come through the embodiment of God himself, Christ the Son. You know, not by more human prophets who needed the word of God just as much as the ones they were delivering it to, but by the eternal Son who is the word made flesh. God has spoken to us in the most wonderful way by his Son. And before he goes on to reveal more about all of this and what the son has said, he just continues to go on about how magnificent he is in verses two through four. He is incomparable. And what the author does is, is really quite poetic. It, it, it's, it's very interesting, and, and he's impressing a point on them. He wants to convince them that God's revelation is complete in the son. And so he lists seven things about him to prove that he is the completion of God's revelation. And number seven, the number seven in the Bible is the number of completion. They knew that. It's clicking. Here's the seven things about Jesus he lists. First, he is the heir. Verse two. Heir of what? He is the heir of all things. Everything that is God's, all the glory, all the majesty, all the honor that is due to God alone belongs to Christ. God appointed him heir of all things. God said to him, ask of me and I will give you the nations and the ends of the earth is your possession, Psalm 2. It's all his. The future is his. He is the heir of all things. That can only be said of Jesus. Jesus is superior. He says next that he is creator. Verse 2. He's the heir of all things and the creator of all things. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. The eternal son who was with the father in the beginning. You think about John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That in the beginning, go all the way back in time as far as you can go without stopping. Then, that's when the Word was with God. 
before time and space. In Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. That was Jesus. By him, all things were created, Colossians 1-16. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who we're talking about here. This is who is the last word. This is through whom God has spoken in these last days that are different than all the ones before. He is the revelation of God himself. He reveals to us who God is, verse 3. And so that's the third thing, is that he is revealer. That's the third thing the author lists. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He's not a likeness. He's not like analogous to God, but God himself. He is the radiance of the glory of God, it says, and the exact imprint of his nature. What's the closest you think they thought you could get to God? Moses, maybe? Right? Moses saw God, but he only saw his back parts. Remember that? God told him, no one can see my face and live. That's what God told Moses. Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect representation of God because he is God. This is unfathomable, right? Because God is invisible. He's, he's unknowable, but he has made himself visible and made himself knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. And you can't know God any other way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So why would you leave? Why would you look from somewhere else? What where do you expect to find him? That's what the author of Hebrews is getting across to them. You know, where are you going to go, Moses? You're going to go back to Moses? Moses longed to have what you already do. He could only give you whatever he had, and you already have more than he did. The next thing he says is Jesus is sustainer, verse 3. What keeps us on this ball we call Earth, spinning around in space a thousand miles per hour. All the smart people say, well, gravity. But that doesn't amaze you? What sustains life on this planet? People say the sun, right? It's fueled by star power. The the sun. Plants soak up starlight and water and breathe in what we exhale and we inhale what they exhale. Pretty neat. And who keeps us just close enough to that star that all of that is made possible here and just far enough away from it so that we don't all burn up and die? Christ not only brought it all into existence, he sustains what he has made. 
He is the word that spoke it into existence, and in him all things hold together. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, it says there at the end of verse 3. He is the sustainer. Next on the list, and let's not leave this one off, he is redeemer, verse 3. He made purification for sins because that's what we required. We require purification for our sins. He went to the cross and endured not only the physical torture of all of that, but he drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs for those he came to save. You think about that for a second. We hear that kind of thing and sometimes we just get numb to it. Imagine the amount of wrath stored up just for you. The amount of wrath you had coming for all of your sins before you were saved and all the sins you'll commit from now until you die. What's that add up to? We don't all have equal amounts, by the way. We all have lots, but some of us have more than others. We only needed one, the smallest little sin to deserve the everlasting, eternal wrath of God Almighty. But some of us have sinned big. We have big sin. It's okay, go there. You got some big sin? How much did you add to the cup of God's wrath? You there yet? Now imagine all of God's wrath due for all of the sin of all of his elect. Imagine how full and bitter of a cup that was. And Jesus took it all. Stood as our substitute and took all of that upon himself when he never added a drop to it. Because he did, we have a clean Slate, we have a clean record as though we never added a drop to it ourselves. And so we have fellowship with God because of that. So this is the Jesus they're tempted during this time to believe isn't enough for them. This son that God has spoken to us by, he is our redeemer. There is no other way of being reconciled to God. The next thing the author makes sure to mention is that he is ruler, verse 3. These are just packed in there nice and tight. Verse 3 is loaded with them. He is ruler. He died for our sin, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He ascended to heaven, and where he sits now, he rules and reigns with all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's seated. Don't miss that part. Just those small little things. Don't miss that part. He's seated. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You consider Psalm 110.1, the most popular verse quoted in the New Testament. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Christ is seated because his duty is done. His work is finished. You think about the priests. Back in the Old Testament times, they never sat down. You know, the work was never done. And then when it was done for the year or whatever, they had to do it all over again the next year. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has made a once and for all atonement for the sins of his people, and it's never to be repeated. There's no sacrifice left to be made, and he has revealed all that is to be revealed. Now he rules while all authorities and rule and power are made a footstool for his feet, and he is reconciling to himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's Colossians 1 again. The last thing the author wants us to know, to really convince these people God's revelation is complete in Christ, is that he is supreme. Verse 4. Supreme, supreme. Super supreme. And how, how do you get that idea across to first century Christians who are formerly Jews? He says he is superior even to angels. If he didn't have their attention already, he does now, right? Because angels are messengers from God. You couldn't imagine a more clear and more perfect message coming from God than being visited by and spoken to by an angel. That's the clearest message from God anyone could ever hope, hope for. But Christ is superior to even the angels. How so is subject for the next sermon. Okay? But he begins explaining how so by saying the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know, you think angels are messengers of God. They're servants of God. They go to and fro, carrying out his every order and doing his bidding. Christ is seated next to the Father, taking the inheritance being given to him. He is superior to even the angels. He's not just different from them. He's better than them. And all that to say, this is the author's point and why he goes through this right from the start. Jesus is not just different from what they came from in Judaism. He is better. He's not, just a new, he's not a new story. He's the ending to the story that they know so well. And he's worthy of their attention, their love, their devotion, and obedience. He is the completion of God's revelation to mankind. God has spoken and there's nothing more to say. We have it all from start to finish and it's been finished for us in Christ the Son. If you find yourself in a similar situation as these Christians that the book of Hebrews is written to, if you're bored or worn out with Christianity, this is the Jesus, y'all, that you're claiming to be bored with. Maybe you're like them. Maybe you just didn't realize how magnificent he is. Or maybe you'd forgotten. The book of Hebrews is for you. If you've grown cold in your affections toward Jesus, look again. If you feel like you've never really felt close to God in the first place, listen to me, you cannot get closer to God than in Jesus Christ. He's it. And he's enough. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. He promises he will do that. To give you knowledge, to give you wisdom, to give you peace and comfort and assurance, to give you blessing and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you for this great gift we call the Bible so we can know you and know what it is that you require of us, that you have made in your image for your glory. But most of all, thank you for your Son who is the Word made flesh that dwelt among us to complete your revelation to us and your redemption of us. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.